Hello and welcome to the Diageo Bar Academy podcast, Bar Chat. Join me, your host, Tristan Stevenson, as I chat to some of the biggest and best names in the industry on a whole range of bar-related topics. When you write a job ad, it should repel 90% of the people reading it and attract 10%. The moment you start involving your team, getting them to believe in your vision, you just never know what will come out. From the finer details of spirits and cocktails to the latest global trends, we hope you're inspired by the variety of episodes available. We are in the studio today with Anna Sebastian from the Artesian, which is literally just around the corner from this studio, actually. Um, Not so around the corner from the USA, we've got Sean Finter. Welcome, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Hey, how are you? Good, good. Thank you. So the theme of the podcast uh, that we're discussing today is how to nurture a happy and successful bar team, which... I would think, and I hope you guys agree with me, is probably one of the most important things you can do as a bar manager or bar operator if you want a successful business. Yeah, for sure. I think um, there's so much interest in this conversation at the moment. And I think it's really, really important. Um, The team for me is where where it all starts. And building a really good, good team um, it's not the easiest thing to do, but it's the thing that you really need to invest in, I think, especially from the beginning if you're starting from scratch. I'd say from my, my perspective, you know, as the, the bar geeks, uh, we work with around 2,000 businesses every month and we run a lot of surveys in, in addition to being able to see their profitability. Um, there's a direct correlation between the happiness of the people that work at the venue and their profitability. Um, you know, we use a simple tool developed by Gallup called the Q12. And when you see, you know, A scores and A plus scores, you almost always see uh, an extremely healthy bottom line. And that's just a survey that you give to staff that assesses their, their happiness within the workplace. Yeah, 12 simple questions, yes or no answers, uh, no name on the page, just, uh, you know, tick 12 boxes for us. And it's amazing what it can tell you. And, and questions such as, uh, I know it's expected of me at work. Sure. Uh, someone in my someone in my job encourages my development. Um, I have the tools that I need to do my job properly each each shift. It's amazing how things like that really matter to people that work uh, long ten hour shifts. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it comes down to people wanting to feel satisfied that they are achieving something that they have a purpose that they have a job description that kind of that they're aiming to you know achieve and to tickle those boxes right yeah you know we do as humans want to feel satisfied and we also want to feel respected you know we're often you know customers don't show a tremendous amount of respect for for staff and and that's got to be supplemented by by the leadership team when when you've got people working long hard days for you yeah i think going back to that survey we actually have something Similar, and it's very, very common practice, especially in hotels, to have these. Um, And I think that information is just absolutely imperative to kind of grow and develop. I think also asking those simple questions on a regular basis, asking for that feedback. You know, without that information, we can't grow, we can't learn, we can't develop. And sometimes you're going to get feedback that is really bad, that's going to be upsetting. But taking that into account is the only way that you'll move forward. I remember probably about nearly nine years ago when I first started sort of or eight years ago when I first started in hotels it was one of my first sort of leadership positions and I remember getting the survey back and there were some really really low scores and I was just how and I took it really really personally I was really upset very quite young and inexperienced with it but it was probably one of the best things that happened in my career because I sat down with everybody individually and I said well why did you mark it so low like what what is your feedback how can I get better and it was a really at the time I was very like emotional very very upset but taking that information actually allowed me to kind of really invest in myself in terms of like a leader and in terms of sort of man- management skills and so on um but I think it's really important without that information we have nothing to go on mm, I think the truth hurts right yeah but if you're going to make a change or you know uh, attempt to understand what you're doing wrong or and what you're doing right then you've got to be honest with yourself about those things and the only way to do that is to really ask the question you know a lot of venues will survey their customers won't they yeah to find out what's right you know did you like the condition of the toilets was your drink served in a timely manner yeah and that's that's important too but surveying your 
your staff, your team, right? That, I mean, that's sort of almost like the, the key to getting good results when you survey your, your customers because it's going to reflect well um, in, in the service that they're going to receive. Yeah, no, I agree completely. I think that, that surveying is, uh, you know, asking the question um, always works if you do something about it afterwards. Unfortunately, too many venues survey their staff and then don't do anything with the results, and that can lead to making things worse. So chipping away at things and, and progressively making it a better place to work is is always a good idea. Yeah. I think also just it's the little things as well that have the most value, like you may, maybe talk about you know, holiday requests or days off or time off. And I think when you're looking after a team, like you have to understand that every single person has a different value on different things. You know, holidays may mean more to one person than it does to the other. So you can't just have a blanket rule. It's about how you deal with these, how you understand what their values are. And then you start understanding, you start building that relationship with them and actually start kind of managing or moving things about to make sure that they're happy or they feel sort of looked after, they feel safe, they feel respected and everything as well because it works both it works both ways. Yeah, I think that's actually that's actually one of the bigger challenges, right? Because everyone has different needs, um, different requirements, perhaps different aspirations or trajectories that they see their career taking. So it's not just a simple case of saying, oh well I know that all of my staff would prefer to have longer breaks or everyone wants paying more. It's getting into those micro requirements as well. Mm. I think you have to go a little bit further back and I think you actually have to look about the hiring process. Oh, thanks, Anna. We were going to get onto that. so sorry. No, no, it's perfect. (laughs) You've just saved me from even introducing it. Go for it. Um, I think it's it's really important to invest in that. I think it's really important to have people that are really, really good at hiring people Mm. and also doing your research on people as well. So when they do come in, you're actually sort of building building on that sort of picture as well. and I think asking those questions to really get to know the essence of somebody's character. There's a couple of different ways to go about job interviews, isn't there? One is to sort of get, for want of a better term, I'm doing air quotes, like get to know the person, yeah. understand their character and therefore assess like their suitability for the role and, and also how well they're likely to get on with the rest of the team. And the other way, there may be more ways than this, and I'm sure Sean will fill me in if there is. The other way, I suppose, is to assess their capability of the role required of them. Yeah. What, what, how would you make a martini? You know, what, what if I said I want an olive and a twist? How would you feel about that? Okay, what, what's your favourite way of shutting down a station at the end of the night? These are pretty bad questions, obviously, yeah. but you know, <laughs> you know what I'm getting at, okay? Um, so, you, you, Anna, you would take more of an approach of like, right, I'm just going to want to assess your personality and see how that is going to gel with everyone else around here. And the rest of it, we can teach you kind of thing. Yeah. And also, you know, I want to know what they're passionate about. I want to know what's, you know, what the dream is. Like, I want to know about, you know, times that they've, you know, created a moment or created something for somebody. What do you think, Sean? Talk about, let's talk about interview process. What do you, how, how would you go about structuring an interview and what are the kind of goals or the kind of points that you're looking to achieve in an interview that's likely to, to result in a successful you know, candidate who's, who's good at their job? Well, firstly, um, I'm wide open to the idea right now that I'm going to make a lot of uh, bad hiring decisions in the future because I've made a ton in the past. You know, I've, I've taken courses on hiring. I've, I've read 20, 25 books on the subject, and uh, I still get fooled by people who, you know, just interview well and tell, tell you what they want to hear. So mm. uh, I start there, and, and the reason I mention that is when we hire, whether I was hiring for a bar or for my consulting firm, um, we employ people, um, and we have a, basically a 90-day paid trial. Whatever wage you would be getting from us, if you're at 50000 a year or $150,000 a year, we're going to take you on for 90 days, and at the end of that, um, if it's a good fit, you like us and we like you, and it looks like it's going to work out, then you've got a job with us. And that just takes a lot of pressure off hiring to begin with. I think offering someone a job and then having it be so messy uh, is unnecessary. But what we do look for in the hiring process, you know, we, you mentioned core values and character. Um, you know, you get to know someone in an interview process, three, four interviews, and, and see if they tick those boxes. The core values have really got to be real, like things that really make a difference to your business, to your customers, uh, to your team. Uh, One of ours, for example, is that you're a a passionate student and a patient teacher. We change a lot. We're always upgrading. It's frustrating for 
95% of humans, the 5% that we hire love it because, you know, they can't tell us they're a passionate student. And then we ask them what they're reading, what they're studying in the last 12 months, and they say nothing. So we make sure we get that right. And then we, we have an honest assessment of our operating system. You know, the, the leadership style of our management team, the, the youth of the business, what we're actually taking on at the moment, what we're trying to do. And that makes or breaks a lot of people here. So when we get those things right and we interview around those three key criteria, as I say, if we, if we have a period of time now where we can come in and, and do our best for 90 days and see how, how it works out, um, when we started doing that, it, it made all the difference for us. I think it's also about managing their expectations in job interviews. So, f- for example, lateness, you know, for me, it's a really, it's an important thing. Like, I need to be able to trust somebody that they can be on time. Now, short exceptions happen and everything. But if you're one minute late, for me, that tells me that you, you're lazy. You can't be, you couldn't be bothered to get there that one minute earlier to be there on time. So I think, you know, in that process, we also owe it to them to manage and make sure that expectations are very, very clear. If it's lateness, just using that as an example, managing that from day, you know, day zero. Day minus actually, one. Minus yeah, one, yeah. exactly. You're going you, the results actually will be much better. Hmm. The, the lateness thing amazes me. We, we, whenever we um, have certain, we're recruiting for certain roles, um, it does astonish me the number of people that are late. And, um, or, or, or indeed send an email or a text saying, really sorry, um, can we rearrange? And that kind of thing. And I mean, I, if it was me, I would never bother sending that message. I'd, I'd simply send a message saying, really sorry, I messed this one up this time. Sorry to have wasted your time. Um, you know, crack on. Hope you find a good candidate. These are all great points. And I think as, as leaders in the industry, when we're hiring people, we could use the tools that, that are available to us to um, better set those expectations, even before the interview process. And with, the, with our, our values, for example, um, one of our values is to, to be both on time and ready. And those are two different things um, yeah. to a shift. And so we shot a video on an iPhone uh, and we explain our, our eight values. And when we talk about being ready, as an example, I'd say if you, can, if you can run in the door 60 seconds before you're about to take a shift and walk into a pre-shift meeting, you would be the first person we've ever seen that's done that. Now, I'm not telling you you have to come 15 minutes early. However, that's what our best people do. They, yeah. they come in, they get ready, they get mentally ready, they get physically ready, they talk to each other, they connect, and then they get into the shift. Yeah. Sean, do you do, do, you do trial shifts? What are your thoughts on Yeah, that? we do. And in and, and that 90-day period, like, it, it stages up. So the first five shifts are, are really, you know, they're designed for a two-way street. There's not a lot of weight put on them. Um, you know, they're really talking to us at the end of the shifts about the leadership and, and you know, is this a style that's going to work for you, the pace of the business, um, they get to talk to a different person all five shifts and, and they are encouraged to ask anything. And the people that are working with them um, are instructed to tell them everything. You know, they're going to find out anyway. So just tell them exactly what it's like to be here. Next five shifts are different. It steps up every week in the process until we figure out. And in my restaurant company, we had about 390 employees. Um, you know, less than 60% made it through that 90 days. So it was around 55%. Okay. That's interesting. We try what we do when someone starts, we sort of buddy them up with somebody. So somebody that's maybe been at the company much longer. So they have that person as a buddy. You know, they get introduced to that person at the end of their orientation. They sit down, they go out for a drink, they have a coffee. We give a small budget towards that to not a huge amount, but, you know, we give a small budget to facilitate that. And then what we try and do is when they arrive, you know, book in sort of check-ins with one of the management teams. So they have their whole sort of schedule for the next three months to just check it. And it can be as informal or formal as you like. You know, you can just go maybe to the pub, have a drink, just check in with them. And I think, you know, when we haven't done that, you've seen people take longer to kind of fit or understand the company. I think also now more than ever, you know, gone are the days where it was like management up here and like, you know, colleagues and line level colleagues coming in. There's it's a much closer relationship. And a lot of people, especially millennials, they want that. They want to feel like they're needed and wanted and they, you know, need that, I guess, constant sort of check in mm. and having those. Sure, you know, it takes up that more time, but the investment is so, so, so worth it. So worth it. 
Just because um, we're talking a little bit about job interview and sort of trial shifts and everything and managing the expectations of, of potential candidates, what kind of filters can be applied at the job advertisement stage to ensure that you're getting the best candidates in the room with you in the first place? And what I mean by that is where should we be advertising? How should advertisements be worded? What information should they include? What shouldn't they include? Um, to in, in order just to attract the best people in the first place? Well, I can tell you from recent experience, I, I just uh, hired someone in the last few weeks here and um, literally reached out to the community around me, business community, because I was surprised with how many applications that I got, nine or ten times the average, and I was overwhelmed by how many great applicants applied. And, and here's, here's what I do um, a little bit differently than most. Um, I write a job ad, you know, in like you're telling a story. And, you know, I was told a friend of mine, um, Cameron Harold, he's, he's a guy who was a mastermind behind 1-800-GOT-JUNK that kind of, um, it's a Harvard, uh, case study right now on small business going to medium to large. And, uh, he says, when you write a job ad, it should repel 90% of the people reading it mm-hmm. and, and attract 10%. This job ad I wrote, I, you know, I said, hey, you're going to be working directly with me. And, and here are a few things that make it really, really difficult to work with me. Like I'm <laughs> yeah. really difficult to work with. What did you and say? here's <laughs> why. And then, and then it says, hey, if you're still reading, um, <laughs> okay, that's great. You know, most people are going to stop reading right there. And then it goes on to say, you know, later buried down uh, deeper, it goes on to say, here are five really cool things about working here. In our building, we've got a, we're in a historic building. We've got a gym. We've got a movie cinema. We've got two full bars. You know, you can use that for, but you, you got to know that this is a tough job to work at. So I think if you write an ad in a certain way, and I'll tell you, tell you one more thing, the, the new problem you'll create is if you get really good at writing job ads, um, it's tough uh, writing back to all these people, right? You can't interview. I, I had 400 applicants for one job. Um, so what I do is I shoot a video of myself and I ask three questions in the video. I said, hey, listen, I, I'm blown away at how many people applied and the quality um, I wanted to find out, you know, why, why me and why Barmetrics? Um, secondly, you know, what it is of the things that were difficult, uh, you thought might be difficult for you. And I say, if you don't tell me one, then I'm not going to believe you because I'd have a hard time with them all. And thirdly, explain to me why you're in the right place at the right time in your life. You know, why this and why now? And then they have to shoot that back in a video to me. So of that, you know, less than 150 shot a video back. That's still a lot of videos though, Sean. Yeah. You've got, that's like two or three movies worth of videos you've got to look through, right? That's right. But you guys know from watching for, you know, 60 seconds, the people that are just like clicking the buttons and yeah, I'd like a job there because blah, blah, blah. And, you know, there were 12 incredible candidates that you could just see it right through those videos. And, and I brought all 12 in. This is like the kind of you know, 21st century way of conducting job interviews, right? You get everyone to record a little video of themselves to save everyone's time coming in. But, well, which in a way, I suppose, is itself a filter. You're you're removing that necessity for them to be on time and everything. But nonetheless, you're from 100, 300 candidates, you're going to, you know, you're going to do a good job of drilling down into who's going to be suitable, aren't you? Yeah. A lot of people wrote me and said, hey, I'm, I'm just not comfortable uh, putting myself on, on video. And I wrote back and I said, hey, I totally respect that. I said, if you were working with me, you have to be on Zoom calls with international audiences all the time. Mm. So this this isn't the job for you. I totally get it. I think also word of mouth is, for me, it's been probably the biggest, most successful sort of recruitment agent. The guys in the team sort of go, hey, I've got this person. And sometimes they're right, sometimes they're not. But that those are the biggest sort of promoters. And it's a very different scale, I think, sort of, that I'm sort of working on, but it's the majority of people, the last 10 people that we've hired have all been word of mouth, hmm. which is amazing because, and, and you know, like people hang out with like-minded people. And I think that's a really, really great sort of reference point, a really great hmm. source as well. What do you think about that, Sean? Because you can, I mean, there's, there's, you can obviously post a job on a job board or through social media. You can also post it internally and look at recruiting internally if it's you know a, you know a level up position um, or even a level across position. Um, and then there's the word of mouth thing. So how do you balance those kind of three or four different sources of, of potential candidates? 
and how do yeah. you how do you weight them as well? I th- I think you've you've got to go all in. You know, recruiting is one of the most important things that that any employer does, and you see where you're getting the most traffic of of quality players. You know, the the idea of of uh, getting your A players to bring in their friends, like A players hang with A players, right? You don't have many yeah. like hustlers that are just great young people working for you that hang around with deadbeats eating Cheetos <laughs> off the yeah. Just not, not how it works. Yeah, that's true. What, what we did was incentivize them on two levels. One, to uh, we gave them a, a cash or experience incentive um, to if, if one of their friends um, got hired with the company and then a second equal uh, bonus if they made it through the six-month induction to give them incentive to help them through it. You know, we had a really rigorous induction program. We wanted them to keep with them to, to make sure they knew it was worth it on the other end. Then when it came to traditional channels, as I say, like we always advertised in a, you know, borderline wacky way. You know, you really got to interrupt the pattern. People see all the same nonsense, blah, blah, blah. We're hiring, great place to work. Like you've got to come in and, and just have someone grab their eye right away. And, and as I say, attract those, those that 10% and push away the rest. But the other thing that we did, and I continue to do today, like we were an aggressive recruitment company outside of the industry. You know, great people are great people. And we had a, we had a really good induction program. So I could hire someone from a grocery store, um, the bank, I hired the assistant bank manager. Um, I hired from anywhere people worked. If they were great people and we said, Hey, come in and interview and have a chance to work, you know, at a really cool bar or a really cool bar group. Um, there's something about that. And, and within six months, people would say to us, like, where do you find these great bartenders and find out, you know, that young man was working at the grocery store. And I tell you, the loyalty that you build when you take someone out of a grocery store and put them into a cool bar, have them bar back for three months, start their training. And, and six to 12 months later, they're working on the bar, making a couple hundred bucks a night in tips. It's immeasurable. What about, um, recruiting from within and promoting from within because as a business operator myself it's always the most tempting avenue to go down because you have loyal team members you feel some way beholden to them to continue you know their growth and their trajectory and and to help them you know move up to a new role or to give them another role that's going to sort of challenge them or, or help them to sort of have a broader set of skills within the industry and I sometimes feel that when I've done that, I've made a mistake and actually probably should have recruited someone externally. And I've allowed my kind of fondness for that internal employee to get the better of me. Yeah, I think, I mean, you still have to remember that at the end of the day, it's a business. Mm. And I think that could easily get lost in this industry because it's such a fun industry and mm. there's so much other stuff going on. But you have to, despite obviously, you know, I really believe from recruiting within, we've, in the last six months, we've promoted two people from bar, we only hire for one person. So we have a bar person instead of like bar back servers, bartenders. So we have one role and everybody does everything. And in the last six months, we've promoted two people from bar person to bar supervisor. And probably the best decision that we actually ever did Mm. but sometimes obviously you still have to think with your business hat on and you can't just promote somebody because you like them or they're good at what they you know or they're good or they try hard you still have to think does this person is this person going to you know grow and develop make sense of the business as well sometimes sometimes you can like not promoting them can yeah. be a bad thing yeah, because you go because they they've been eyeing up this position that they know is yeah. arriving soon. They know that you're going to recruit for it, and they've they want it. And to bring in someone new, yeah, made, it could be really you could, they could be your A team bartender who's looking yeah. for that supervisory role, and then not getting it might mean that they they then leave yeah. and go somewhere else. But then I think it's if you believe in them that they can do it, that it's your you know you have to do your due diligence, yeah, and train them to make sure that they are ready and if they're not then that's a different that's a different story because some people are amazing bartenders but when it comes to management they're not yeah. and they're going to fail and it's but not this is fair the, this is the problem isn't role. it it's the problem because they might think that they're capable of doing it yeah you might think they're not and this is i'm speaking from personal yeah, experience because i have promoted people to supervisory or management positions before and found them to be wholly incapable yeah, of doing and it and not ready and yet they were fantastic members of the team yeah. 
And then the next thing you know, they're leaving your business. I'm glad I'm not the only one who has, uh, you know, put someone into a position and, and uh, compromised their life and my business because I've done that many times. And I, I, I came to found out that it's, it's called the Peter principle when you promote someone to their level of incompetence. You know, they yeah. don't want to work the job. <laughs> I've taken many an amazing bartender and made them a miserable management uh, member overnight and had them leave and go back to bartending somewhere else. And it's yeah. unfortunately, I had to do it a dozen times before I realized um, what I was doing. But I think, you know, the, I, every business I, I, I feel should have some sort of hook, you know, something that you are um, doing for each member of your team that's kind of unique, something that you can give them that'll truly enrich their life over and above the job. And so now with my consulting firm, I, I said, anyone who starts here, you're going to be an EA, you're going to get hired as a consultant out of the gate, or I've got video people. I said, over the course of four years, you will be put through courseware and given experiences that you will have, uh, I, would, I would be comfortable putting you up against anybody coming out of university with a four-year degree, yeah. right? Like the, I, I just give them everything I've got. In the restaurant business, we had a 36-month program to entrepreneurship. Okay. So everyone that I hired, this was part of our, our hiring process, and said, I, at the end of three years, you will present your plan to our board. And they said, well, what if I don't want to have my own business one day? And I said, well, you'll be working in someone else's and you'll be much better off for understanding every aspect of business, how to read a balance sheet, a P&L, how pricing works, inventory control, supplier negotiation, dealing with landlords, you know, all of these aspects, maybe not in their totality you're going to use, but you will use uh, certain elements in your personal life or professional life moving forward. And, you know, with that, we were able to attract this group of people that were like, hey, if I could work at any bar in town, you know, all things being equal, that, that's what they're doing there. That's special and unique. And we had literally hundreds and hundreds of people apply every year because they wanted to be a part of that program. Mm -hmm. Now, you also had to maintain a level of excellence at your job, whether you were a dishwasher or a bartender or a barback, and you had to train in another position. Um, front of house had to train in back of house and back of house in front of house. And there's no bartender I've met that isn't going to have to cook a meal later in life. And it turns out that, you know, a lot of people that work in the kitchen love being out front and getting an opportunity to learn to make drinks and set up a bar and break down a bar and, mm. and interact with that team. Sean, just to clarify that, you're it's a 36-month program where you ask them to present at the end their kind of entrepreneurial idea. Are you, are you giving them a form of training? I mean, you're obviously training. I know you're training. But are you giving them a form of training specifically towards entrepreneurship during the course of that 36 months? Or are they? is it just really expecting them to come up with an idea at the end? No, it's every, every six months. We give them a passport. Like They work at their own pace. But they know that at these six-month markers that you have, you should be, you know, at, at a certain place, and you have to get signed off in all these areas. So, like I said, one of them is is you have to get to a two hundred one level on financial literacy. Right. You have to, and, and that means you have to be able to teach it back and teach the next person. So it, it was a a system of people now teaching people <laughs> inside the system. But but I do I do believe we believe that you don't really know something until you can teach it. Right. So yeah, if you're there, yeah. you're having to answer those questions and go through that. And whether that's as simple as, you know, the the understanding, like how to, how to cash up and, and how the whole business balances, you know, cash versus every other form of payment that we take at the end of the day and at the end of the month. And then looking how that plugs in the balance sheet, like there's the monthly revenue now. And then all these costs come out at the bottom. That's what the shareholders are taking home like I saw people's jaw hit the table. They had no idea that bar owners made so little money. I think I think that's really that's really really key. I think getting people invested and getting people to understand the business. One of the big things that I always say is like, guys, would you still make this decision if this was your own business? Mm. If that was your bar, would you still let you know ten employees drink three bottles of water every single night? And that mm. actually just changes the way people think about it. And I think that understanding that knowledge that kind of training like you said it makes people kind of really understand like what is a PL, how does a PL work i think you're really really right in saying that you know people don't understand anything you make millions of pounds and you just don't no it's always surprising when you have like really honest conversations with the team about the the sort of inner workings of the business i think the thing is when bartenders haven't had that form of training to understand 
the kind of major overheads of a business. They just look at it very simplistically like, well, I know how much you're paying for this product and I know that I'm selling it for about four or five times what you're paying it for. So there, you're making a lot of profit. And, you know, there's there's obviously, there's rent and there's business rates and there's the staff costs and the cleaning and the light and the heat and all these Mm. other things that factor in and you end up with, you know, 10 to 15 to maybe 20 percent of of that sale of VAT as well of course yeah yeah Yeah, no it's very true but I also think just like as an industry we need to maybe be looking at what what we're educating people about there's so many seminars and presentations about menu creativity which is amazing because it's a huge part of what we do or you know drinks or you know rotor apps but how many kind of trainings are there or how many people are investing in people when it comes to actually looking at it as a business because mm. it is a business mm. you know if money isn't coming in if we're not being smart the business doesn't exist people this, don't have jobs this is why we had to get you in the studio Anna this is, <laughs> this is it but it's something that I'm really passionate about and it's yeah. something that I work really really hard to learn and if you're invested in hospitality there's this side is so important the finance the numbers you know, the cost control, everything is so, it's so important. The level of, of the education that you're providing for people and the engagement that you get, you know, if people don't want to learn how, how your business wins or loses, then, you know, they're not the right staff to have there in the first place. If you take a, a spreadsheet and we do this, take a, a spreadsheet, that the whole business and put on there about 12 dials into an Excel spreadsheet and then say, you know, here's the uh, people throw it. Well, geez, it'd be nice if we made a lot more money. And say, okay, well, here's look at the labor cost. Look at the percentage right now that it is. And let's just say we turn that up 30%, right? Just give everyone a, a 30% raise tomorrow. Let's see what, what happens. You know, the bottom line goes into red, right? It's negative. Now the owners are paying for the pleasure of having this amazing risk and liability of this huge business they have. Okay, so that's not going to work. How about this? How about that? And you start to look and get them to really understand. And, and, it, and it goes to their discretionary effort. You know, when we started... You know, I took over one restaurant I had in Sydney and kept the staff on there. And, I, you know, within a month, I'm like, man, I've never seen as much cutlery and, and plates. Like, there's just this loss. <laughs> so they're carrying them out the back door. But they were just going in the bin. And, and, you know, no one ever thought to put their hand in there to get a fork. And I sat down with them and I took as many forks as we went through in the last month and knives and plates and everything else. And I, there was a mound of stuff on the table. And I said, that's what we went through. And I said, here's what this looks like in a year financially for this business. Hmm. Like we could buy a brand new car for the price of stuff that we're churning through. Well, sometimes something like visual like that as well can be a kind of a wake up call. Kind yeah. of. It's all good and well. Like, because the thing is, if you badger staff every day, you know what? We're losing cutlery. We're losing crockery. Please stop it. It just becomes white noise. Yeah. You sit everyone down for a meeting and show them, you know, 500 forks all laid out. Um, then suddenly they're like, ah, okay, this is real. I think one thing is getting what we're actually doing is actually going out to the team sort of next week. So we have an opportunity to go to um, a cocktail festival. Like, then it's a big sort of trip. It's four of us to do like a three-day activation. Um, so obviously naturally like everybody wants to go. And normally we would just be like, let's do a cocktail competition. Let's see who does the best drink and let's take some nice photos and everything. Uh, yeah, sure, that is a great way to determine who goes on what trip. However, this time what we're doing is putting out to the team and saying whoever comes up with the best business idea to make money will go. So completely different. It actually requires people to start thinking about the business and actually sort of contributing sort of ideas. And you never know, somebody may come up with an amazing idea that I would never have thought of. But it's also about getting people to kind of think from the different sort of sides of things instead of just thinking what flavours go together. It's like, well, what actually, what initiative can I do? Mm. Now, it could be anything. You could incentivize the team and say, look, if you meet budget this month, I'll give you all a bottle of champagne. Or it could be like, right, it's coming up to spring, let's do a spritz menu. But for me, I want them to think about what can make money. I think it's kind of a double whammy that as well, isn't it? Because you, on the, on the one hand, you might find a great idea yeah. there that, that you can actually use. Yeah. On the other hand, it's encouraging all of them to think about how yeah. the business works and what might be good for that business. Completely. And I think some of the best ideas, like, you know, we we set up something which was about promoting sort of and championing women in the industry, equality and diversity, which is such a big topic at the moment. And that actually came from a conversation that I had with one of the girls in the bar who simply said, well, why don't we do this? And from that 
conversation, I was sort of really inspired to actually go, well, let's try it. Let's see, let's see what we can set up. And now, you know, we're in a position where we've actually set up a small collective, which, yeah, sure, is small, but it's growing and it's, it's actually having such an amazing response from the industry. So you just never know, you know, the moment you start involving your team, getting them on your side, believing, getting them to believe in your vision, the business vision, is you just never know what will come out. Mm. So once you've got the team in place, how do you then ensure that the team will operate smoothly and deliver against the unique service strategy and like the identity of the outlet? Yeah, so they thinking about being in the service business, the service industry, and not having a service strategy sounds pretty risky. I was working in, in London years ago, and um, I'll never forget the, the gentleman that owned the business came in one day and, and said to us, put a napkin down in front of us and said, we're about to hire 60 people who want to work here for a very short period of time in their life, and we have very little time to train them and induct them. So what is our, how do we win in business? And the, the question has never left me. You know, how does a bar win? And what we discovered, what we believe is that you win by winning over the guest um, if they live in your city or if they come to your city regularly and they come back time and time again and bring their family and friends with them. They recommend your business. It's their business now. And we literally drew on a napkin um, three steps to doing that. You know, so if, if we were to teach somebody what we're going to do, step one for us was that when you're working with someone in the, in the, in the bar business or the restaurant business, we're constantly, actively looking to make them smile, to make them happy in some way. Secondly, we want to ensure that we're looking to optimize the retail transaction. I do believe there's overselling, uh, upselling sometimes can make people uncomfortable, but there's an optimal retail play that is very rarely reached in my opinion so we have to teach people how to do that and make sure that they're constantly providing um, recommendations they're constantly walking people through the offer whether that be with the menu or just verbally and then finally uh, when people are leaving when they're ready to go um, if you're like me you've had a, an experience when the check hits the table that suddenly you're invisible and uh, you know feel like there's a trap door about to come uh, out from under you hmm. And in our businesses, we wanted to make sure that we actively provided a guest a reason to return, right? Even if that was as simple as you and, and, and chivalry, um, but, you know, noticing their preferences during the night and talking about the future with them as you're walking out and, and thanking them for making the decision to, to spend their night with us. So that's how we, you know, framed what winning looked like, and then we measured against that. If you stood in the middle of a room or across the room as a, as a manager on duty, you could see someone actively doing one of those three things or not. And it was a great way to coach them and, and kind of bring them up and along in our system. Hmm. And, and it worked with all sorts of businesses, nightclubs, bars, restaurants, pubs. It works everywhere. I remember reading a, a, a survey of um, guests who've been to restaurants and bars, you know, large-scale survey around what things they valued in the experience. And it ranged from everything to, like, value for money with the food, presentation of the food, the initial greeting when they arrived, and also the goodbye. And I, I remember distinctly, um, I couldn't rank all of those things, but uh, distinctly that the, the goodbye, the farewell, the what are you up to next, where are you going now, was amongst the highest-ranked variables within their experience. And it's something that costs no money whatsoever to your business. All it is is instilling that into the team that this is an important component of a guest's experience, how you say goodbye. My background as a host, like that is what, over bartending, over making drinks, like that is what I'm most passionate about. And I think opening and closing an experience, people underestimate. And I think this is my issue as a host, like people wouldn't give the time or day to somebody that was at the door. I remember like when I opened, well, when we opened the American bar in 2010 and people would just walk straight through, try and walk straight through to the bar and didn't actually bother to engage or listen to what the host has to say. And when you're a good host, you actually are the only person in the entire bar that get if you do your job well, that gets to meet everybody. And I think opening and closing an experience is so important. You know, you're welcoming people in. Well, you, 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 you were my first up. experience at the American Bar about 10 <laughs> years ago when it reopened. Yeah. 
I remember I came with my wife and we walked up the those steps, those iconic those. steps. And I think you'd been open like a day or two. Yeah. And you were stood there and I was like, oh, this is going to be good. She looks happy. <laughs> <laughs> and it was. It was an amazing experience. We'll never forget it. And you were the first and the last person we saw when we went in there. But I, I remember seeing you and I was just like, that's Tristan. He's got like a Savoy. You already had the tattoo. I right? have a Savoy tattoo yeah. on my arm. Yeah, that's right. And everyone's like, don't mess this up. <laughs> he's the one that's got the Savoy tattoo on his like, arm. He's really important. I mean, you are important. But yeah, I think just I was really lucky. I had really good mentors. Um, I had Daniel, you know, Daniel, mm. uh, who's now up at Glen Eagles. I had Salim Khoury, who was one of the head bartenders at the Savoy and really taught me the art of sort of hosting and like, engaging with people that split second you have to make that connection like everybody in the industry has read like Danny Meyer's book about like connecting the dots with people and it's just about the more information you can get from somebody the more opportunity you have to connect with them or connect them with someone else Sean what other what other ways can we sort of motivate and incentivize staff beyond just handing them cash or bonuses and and how do you feel about the idea of bonusing staff on based on profits or revenue or you know achieving certain scores in customer feedback that kind of thing yeah i think that um when it comes to, to motivation as i mentioned earlier i think it's important that you're you're constantly measuring what the what the current engagement is um you know when i started to measure it regularly and and for us that was every quarter every 90 days um, I found, uh, you know, you just, if, especially if you run a, a, a busy bar or a few busy bars, um, you can lose touch and, and, you know, you're there and you just see a snapshot of the business. And, you know, I, I think on particular quarters that everything's going great when it wasn't or, or the other way around. So first tip is to make sure that you're doing that. Um, secondly, um, don't, um, try to take it on alone. If you've got a great team of people, um, ask your team, you know, we, we set up like a culture captain at each store and you could find a better name than that one, but someone who is going to work with leadership to read the feedback that we compiled, uh, that came from the team to, um, give us his or her input. And sometimes we had a few people on the team and to, to gather more info from the staff, you know, we wanted to constantly be working with them to, to, to see what we were capable of and, and doing, and then our, our celebration, um, you know, front of house to back of house, depending on what country in the world you're in, if front of house is, is in a tipped environment and back of house isn't, um, you know, 50 extra dollars uh, a month to a bartender is not a meaningful amount of money in, in the U.S. Uh, it is a meaningful amount of money to, to someone who's working on the line in the kitchen, right? So we yeah. didn't, uh, you know, at first we looked at all things as equal and, and they're not. So we, we, we'd be best to, to identify that. Um, front of house, so with the, with the bartenders, we cut alcohol out of, out of the equation. Um, we really uh, invested in experiential celebrations. So um, in the Australian market, for example, they had a company there uh, called Red Balloon Days that, that just does programs for, for, um, for staff and businesses. And, and uh, one example, we had a, a bartender who won an incentive, um, which was a prize. He got to pick where he was going. He liked sharks. He went to the zoo, the Sydney Zoo. You can feed a chubby uh, dormant shark uh, know, right out of your hand. And, and when someone from front of house won, they got to pick someone from back of house to have that experience with them. So again, we were trying to break down the thickest wall in the building, which was the one between front of house and back of house. And that, that sort of thing, again, you know, we publicized that. We told people about it. They, you know, it was a really cool thing. It became something we were known for and sending people up in hot air balloons and out to uh, someone liked Harleys and there was a, got picked up in a sidecar for a Harley. Um, so whatever it was, you know, it, it seemed to go a lot further than giving someone 500 bucks, which would typically go towards paying down your credit card debt or whatever else might be going on. Yeah, it's an experience. I remember listening to you talking years ago in Tampa, I think when we first met, and you, I remember you saying how you have a credit card that you use in your venues when you're buying a drink or food or whatever, and then over the course of a year or a, whatever period, you'll rack up enough points 
on the card and you can use those points for a holiday or a hotel stay or a flight or whatever that you then gift to whoever's achieved something or it deserves a bonus. That's a clever way of doing it. Yeah, we that was for our peer-to-peer program. And I think anyone who's got a bar or restaurant, you know, two things that the credit cards were were very useful for. One was, as you said, we got air miles on every purchase. So anything I could pay with a credit card, uh, we did. And then we just paid it off. We never paid interest. We paid it off before it was due. And secondly, um, if we ever bought a customer uh, a drink or a staff member, um, it always went on that credit card. And they'd see you take your card out of your pocket and pay for the drink. And it sent a really good message for the staff too, that, you know, nobody gets free drinks here. We're, we're paying for things as we go. Um, but the air miles, we had our peer to peer awards and whoever won it for the year, we would give them uh, a trip to anywhere that star Alliance, uh, which was a carrier we went with, uh, flew to two tickets to wherever you want to go. Um, $2,000 in spending money and an extra week's uh, vacation that year. And the, the cost of that was so minimal for us for like the, the, the publicity and the stories and that, you know, the last guy that won was from Thailand. He brought his four year old daughter back to meet his family for the very first time. Oh, wow. The photos. I still have the photos. I still cry. Oh. When I see the pictures. You know what I mean? Just such an incredible thing. And, and you met, he was a, he was a dishwasher. Then he worked on the line. Today he has his own business. Um, but you imagine how many people lined up to work for us and they hear these things and just go, man, I want to be a part of that. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, so let's talk a little bit about training programs. Like how much is too much training? How much time is it sensible to allocate to, you know, building your staff's knowledge and their service skills and all that kind of thing every week? And how much of that time really actually needs to be spent just them doing the job that you're paying them to do? I think, like, first and foremost, like, for me, it's about understanding what they want and what they want to learn, what they want to know. So we, you can do all the product training in the world, and we also encourage the guys to be like, I want to learn about tequila, I want to learn about coffee, I want to do this, and we'll make it happen. But I need that commitment from them. I'm not going to organise a training if someone, if 10 people, if, if only one person is going to come up. Um, so I think that's also like understanding their sort of needs, but also kind of just like maybe thinking a little bit outside the box. So maybe go, well, why don't we learn about how to build your own sort of like personal brand or how to manage your social media or media training, I think is really important. Public speaking is another. How to photograph cocktails. Yeah. I mean, that's that quite as an well. important skill, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, especially with the fact that everybody is obsessed with Instagram, it's, but it's really important. Don't pretend you're not. I know I am 100%. <laughs> but it's also just about, you know, kind of thinking a little bit differently and saying, well, okay, well, let's do this. There was a study that was done by Forbes. And they asked like the top 500 CEOs of companies, um, what do you think people think of you? Mm. And they asked the CEOs, well, what's your, what do you think your public perception is? They all wrote it down. And only 15% of those people were actually in line with what like their consumers thought or mm. their audience thought mm-hmm. of them. And I think that's a really interesting point. Like, If you don't ask people for feedback, if you don't ask people what they think of you or for honest feedback and ask honest questions, you know, one of the great questions of hospitality, you go to any bar, any restaurant and you know, someone comes to the table, they go, how is everything? And it's just such a dishonest question because you're never going to get an honest answer. But if you ask your honest questions, instead of just saying like, oh, how's everything? Mm. If you've recommended a cocktail, for example... Ask that honest question. Do you mm. like the drink I recommend? Yeah, totally. You? Yeah. And you know if someone likes it or not. Mm. I always say, look, I really recommend this cocktail, but if you don't like it, I'm happy to change it for you. Mm. And like, I'll find a home for it. You know, it's not, you know, but I think by preparing people and making them ask those honest questions, you're going to get an honest answer. It's the same if you ask for feedback about yourself. When people are, maybe they're not sure what they want to do in life. I'm just like, well, ask for feedback. What do people think of you? That might inspire that person to kind of be that guy or that girl or whoever to represent, you know, a niche in that industry. You know, when when I was working with um, bar and restaurant staff every day, one of the things that we talked about right from the the interview process through to pre-shift was that, you know, we're working in one of the toughest industries in the world. The average business in our industry goes bankrupt over the course of four years. Right. Being average is not good enough in this industry. Yeah. And and when somebody tells you 
you know, that their experience, how was everything? And they say, good. Um, we would have to ask a follow-up question to say, what would have made it great? You know, we, we really want to be great and we would love your feedback. And our job, you know, I said, I was getting out of the restaurant business on that level uh, around the time social media was coming in. Um, thank God I probably wouldn't sleep. <laughs> I had uh, eight restaurants. But, um, you know, I said our job is to, to solicit that feedback before it gets out of the building. You know, and, and I feel that once people have had a chance to, you know, have their say, there's less of a chance that they're going to tell a friend that we let them down in a certain way. Yeah. And, uh, and that was our, our full press goal. And then tying back to the, the training question, like how much is too much? Um, it really, to, to, to us, we realized that if we hired people who, who shared the value that they wanted to be constantly progressing and being a, a, an avid student and a patient teacher, if we didn't do enough training, they would leave. Mm. Now, B players and C players were happy to have less and less, but we didn't want to cater to those folks. We also had to make sure that we had several different formats for the training from um, you know, what happened during the induction program, which was really intense, to pre-shift meetings, which we took two or three minutes to have a mini lesson in there. Um, in-store training, bringing people in for three hours or four or five hours, um, depending on what we were working on. And then now with the advent of, of online training and, and being able to shoot two-minute videos that are meaningful um, out to your team and know if you dump them into an LMS, who's watching. But the subjects as well, you know, once people learn their job, once you can bartend at a, at a certain level, you know, it's, it's what else do we need to teach them? and What sort of um, life skills, if you like, and some of the things that we cut into three or four minute lessons at pre-shift were, um, firstly, how to create instant rapport with a stranger. Like, what are the five things that you do to create instant rapport? Secondly, is how do you provide a compelling recommendation that will actually sway someone's opinion? And a third one we did is how do you deliver bad news to a teammate? Right. If someone needs to know something and you're worried about compromising your relationship, how do you phrase it? How do you frame it so that you can tell them what they need to know, but hopefully be able to work together for the rest of the night? Mm. Right. These are the sorts of things that as they came up, we added them into our repertoire. And then, as I said, we were very big on, on the team teaching the team. So a bartender leading the pre-shift and saying, hey, here's the three minute lesson. And these sorts of things, I think, made all the difference for us. I just think so much of what we're talking about here really stems from identifying any possible thing that can go wrong, any mistake you can make, anything that can be a negative force within your team or can be something your customers don't like or that can be... Um, you know, a financial burden on your business, identifying every single one of them and then working out what the solution would be, how that could be fixed or avoided, and then basically kind of turning that into systems that can be instilled into your team, that can be trained and that can be nurtured into them and that they can get on board with over a period of time so that you don't have to deal with these problems as much as you would otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you can... You know, any, any piece of feedback that you get, we, we mapped it. You know, I've been a geek for a long time. So, I, you know, we take a, a matrix of the business and, and say, like, you know, where is it happening? If we could identify physically where people were put off, um, who, when, why did it happen? And then you just start to shortlist. And there's only so much you can tackle. Every, every month we'd work on two or three issues and say, how do we better our chances of this not crippling us in the future and really setting somebody off? And... You know, it works. You chip away at a couple of things at a time. Fantastic. Right. Anna's brought a drink, which you're not going to get to taste, Sean. You really need to come over here uh, into the studio oh, at some I'm point. I'm sorry. I feel really bad. You're missing no, no, out. I just sent it over. I just opened a bottle of water, nondescript. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, we're going to wrap up shortly. Anna, do you want to just to describe what you've brought and pour us a couple of glasses because it sounds delicious you already told me give yeah, me a little bit of information of course like for me at the moment i really love my sort of highballs um so i'm a big big fan of vodka a little bit i'm a quarter polish so it's kind of what i grew up with mm -hmm. um so we're using kettle one um lily blanc we use a little bit of strawberry in there as well um and a little bit of talisker storm 
and just balancing with sugar as well, topped up with a little bit of soda. So it's really, really nice, sort of like long, refreshing drink. Um, the Talisker Storm in there gives it a really nice sort of depth to it as well. And the strawberry is just goes really well with the whiskey. So we're talking so. like smoky vodka strawberry highball. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, I have one or two more questions. Sure. So we've talked a lot about how a manager or an operator might um, behave um, how they might recruit, how they might incentivize teams and everything. But let's think about this from a bartender or a barback's perspective. What would you, what advice would you give to someone in a team right now who wants to make themselves, um, you know, noticed or eligible for promotion, or um, you know, who might want to kind of reap the benefits of staff incentivized rewards, all that kind of thing? How can you be seen to be the A player in a team? Well, I'll, I'll tell you exactly what I did. And, um, you know, the, the short background on me is that I have I'm not gone to college. In fact, I was not able to graduate high school uh, due to my dyslexia. I really didn't understand at the time. And so I was 18 years old working on a bar. And, uh, and a mentor said to me, I said, man, I'm going to be stuck bartending for the rest of my life. Not to be the worst job in the world, but I didn't fancy doing it for 40 years. Mm-hmm. And um, and he said, what do you want to do? And at that time, I said, well, I'd love to own my own bar one day. And he said, then then do the next job while they're paying you for this job. He just said, act like you have that job. Take on every responsibility. Um, train for it. Ask for help. And uh, and keep progressing your way up. And I got to tell you, it's I went from 18 years old to, to going over to London when I was uh, 20 years old, getting a chance to get into management, multi-site management. And at the age of 27, uh, I bought my first bar and restaurant in Sydney, Australia. And six years later, I had eight of them. I'm not suggesting that that's a magic bullet that could work for everybody, but it, it worked for me and it still works today. And the next thing I want to do, I'm doing right now. I'm learning, I'm studying, I'm surrounding myself with people who think that way. And um, if you're like me and learn by osmosis, if you, if you have the mindset that I'm only going to do what they pay me for, then you're probably going to do what you're getting paid for for a long time. Hmm. It's not, not dissimilar to story to me, actually. Um, I uh, opened my own bar, first bar at the same age as well and have gone on to open a few more. Um, not quite achieved the level of success you have, unfortunately, but you know, I've, you've got a few more years on me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, I, my my rule for many years, although I hadn't, I didn't recognise it until much later, um, and actually delivered a seminar on this rule recently, was basically around just saying yes. But, and I, I came to realise that most of the things that I'd achieved had had been a result of putting myself forward, saying yes, even if I was unsure about whether or not I could do it. I, th- I think you're both like really right with what you both said, and. So- very much something that I believe in is being proactive. Like you get back what you put in and it's as simple as that. If you're saying whether it's yes to everything, if you're learning, if you're really pushy, if you're asking questions, what you put out is what you get back. And it sounds like a very, very simple simple formula, but it works. Like I have all the time, everybody is busy, but I have all the time in the world that somebody go when somebody says to me, I want to learn about this, teach me this. And I think that's really, really important to go out, be proactive, take those chances and just really sort of hustle, really push, really kind of just like, you know, and with that, obviously, sacrifices do have to come. And, you know, if you want to be the best at your game, sure, you have to come 15 minutes early. Sure, you need to go to trainings. Maybe you need to do something additional, but the best people will do that. And for me, it's like when I see people doing that, I want to support them. You know, I'll come in on my days off. I'll go to every single cocktail competition or every single public speaking thing they have to do. And I think when you start putting yourself out there, you'll find that you actually create a support network because people like supporting each other. People like, you know, seeing each other's success stories. Mm. This industry is full of generous people that do expect you to do what you say you're going to do after you ask for that help. And if you're currently not working for someone who is kind and generous and willing to invest in you and give you a shot, um, you might not be working at the right place because there are thousands of amazing people that would love to to uh, lend a hand to the next uh, superstar in the industry. Yeah, totally. So final point, um, staff parties. <laughs> <laughs> how, do, how do we see these? Like, 
staff parties are something that I know a lot of my team look forward to. Sometimes we execute them really well. Sometimes we don't feel like we have the budget to do it the way we would like to do it. What's the right way to go about doing this without it just being a kind of free-for-all? Um, you know, what's a nice thing to do with teams that perhaps maybe gives them a little bit of learning at the same time as enjoying themselves outside of the work environment? And how much emphasis should we put on you know, these kind of informal team activities? Like, like anything in, in business, you know, I just think trying to figure out how to do whatever it is that you're going to set out to do at a world-class level. So if you are going to have a party, like how do you have a world-class party, right? Like what does that actually mean to, to you and your business? The costs are, are of course important to consider, but as a bar owner, and I have tens of thousands of customers and we had parties where we had a, someone had a big boat and they traded off with us for, they had a party at our venue. We had a party on their boat, be it a spa, whatever it is. You know, I was able to trade. We had our whole management team and our staff and said, Hey, there's a board in the back, fill it up with ideas to trade with people around town. We, we always had 50 ideas on there, real ideas that they knew mm. people that own those businesses. And then when it came to the leadership team, that's where I loved and I still love today. I, I take my team away every year, uh, sometimes twice a year, and we go somewhere uh, really cool. We did a trip, um, thinking you know, over in Scotland, um, and we went and went to the distilleries. Right? If you're in the in the bar business, you know the people that run those distilleries. And again, you know, airfare is expensive, but the rest of it wasn't. Right? And we had a, a world class trip. I've got photos literally up on the wall. That's when you know you have a good trip. Yeah. We're sitting on the red at the red door of Cardew behind us. You know, we're, we're at a cooperage meeting the, the people, you know, incredible trips. And I think if you're going to do it, you know, do it right. We had to build up to that over, over the years. But now our trips are, you know, stuff that people ask when they're getting a job with us. Like, how do you get on one of those trips? And I say, you volunteer on a committee and you do your job really well with us. And mm. chance you'll be on one of those trips. I particularly like that idea of exchanging like using your customers or indeed like using other bars or restaurants or experiences that are local where they might want to do their staff experience at your place and then you can just swap and that's going to reduce everyone's costs significantly and it's keeping it local and and, and sort of in with the family as well right absolutely mm. yeah you can get your costs down like 25 cents on the dollar yeah Fantastic. Right. Now, we are going to close it up there, unless you've got anything to add, Anna. I think we're all good. <laughs> we're Thank good. you. <laughs> no, it's been amazing. We're, not, we're really... not quite done yet. Okay. Because we have to do quickfire questions. Now, Sean's oh, done this already, but he might want to edit some of his answers like the from the last time. <laughs> you've not done this before. So I'm going to quickfire you, and Sean can just comment and laugh. And if he wants to change any of his, if he remembers any of his Sean responses. can maybe help me out as well. <laughs> it's, not, it's, not, it's not a quiz. It's purely, it's, it's just your, your opinion. Sure. Uh, so question number one. If you can only drink one cocktail for the rest of your time, what would it be? Probably a vodka martini. Oh, shaken or stirred? Stirred, no garnish. <laughs> I, I drink martinis and no garnish. Yeah, never garnish. Yeah, it ruins it. <laughs> Second question, so the, the opposite. Which cocktail would you like to bury, never see again? There's, I don't think there is one. I know, I know, I don't think, I would probably drink any cocktail in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> Even a badly made one, you'll have it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, not not a fussy. Um, I might change my whole garnishing policy on martinis based on that. <laughs> no, don't. <laughs> um, okay, you can only drink in one bar for the rest of your time. Favorite? It can be your favorite bar in the world, or it could be the one that you are willing to kind of suffer the longest. <laughs> I mean, right now it would be my bar. Mm -hmm. Well, our bar, but otherwise it would be my local pub. What's that pub called? So it's called the Leather Bottle. It's in South London. Okay. It's um, in Tooting, and it's just an amazing pub. Great garden. I think pubs are really underrated in the industry. They don't mm. necessarily get the recognition. Great hospitality, great beers, great wines, mm. Aperol spritzes in the summer. I can't, Sean, do you remember? I think you went with Dead Rabbit, didn't you? With that. It was either Dead Rabbit or Shortage House. That might be cheating because there's a couple of bars in there, but I could spend uh, easily a month in there right now. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah no, that's a good shout. Yeah. That's a really good shout. <laughs> uh, and then final question. So you're, you're tending bar. Yeah. And you've got a, you're going to have one wing person who's your bar back, your confidant. So probably I would choose, I'm, I'm going to get like crucified, whatever I say. Um, right now, one of, 
probably one of the guys in our team. His name's Will. He's our bar supervisor. We've known each other probably about two years. He drives me absolutely crazy. But in terms of working together, it's it's amazing. We kind of get each other. You know when you just like can say anything just by one look? Yeah. And they understand what you're like trying to say. Like, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But saying that, like anybody in the artesian, I would I would work with. But wow, you're um, so loyal. Yeah, I know. I, was, I, I was going to say, I can imagine the one look the rest of the team would give after that answer. Yeah, I know. I'm not. <laughs> I didn't want this to go out. <laughs> oh no, it's going out. Like, By the way, your drink was delicious. Thank the you. The strawberry so much. is really lovely. I can't um, take full credit for it. our head bartender Marco, who also I would love I love working with. Um, he. Um, he made this drink um, just, and it's nice, simple, no homemade ingredients. So really easy to replicate at home, mm-hmm. which I think I really believe in as well. Like, yeah. I think drinks should be able to be able, be able to be made and drunk wherever you are. Mm. Cool. Well, a lovely thing to finish on. Um, thank you so much, guys, for this. Sean, thanks again. Thank you. Amazing to have your insight and um, to make me feel a little bit better about some of the bad decisions I've made. <laughs> 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 and, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's just wonderful to have your knowledge, I think, uh, on this podcast because it's so far-reaching and exhaustive. And I know you say you're learning all the time and we all are and everything, but... Um, I learn a lot every every minute that we're talking. So um, it's been fantastic to have you. And Anna as well. Like, we should do more of this because uh, it's wonderful to hear what you're doing at the, the Artesian and making your Thank impression you. there. And um, you're a force. Thank you so much for having us. All right. Well, it's been amazing. Thank you. And really nice to share it with Sean, who obviously, like, I know so much about from afar. But... It's been a great privilege, so thank you very much. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Bar Chat. Visit diageobaracademy.com for access to more podcast episodes and exclusive content. See you next time.